hello, and welcome to the Belt and Road podcast, where we cover the latest news, research, and analysis on China's growing presence in the developing world. I am your host, Eric Maestrino, coming to you again today from Durham, North Carolina. Before we begin, I'd like to remind everyone that if you like the latest updates on the Belt and Road Initiative, to follow us on our Twitter or Facebook. Our handle is at Belt and Road Pod. I started the show because I really wanted to bring more nuance to the discussion of Chinese actors involved and what could be considered Belt and Road type activities. You know, more nuance to the Chinese actors that are involved, the sectors of the economy that are involved in, and the geoeconomic, political, and market drivers that have them going out into the world. Also important to understand is the country or even regional local context in which these actors are going into. Case study after case study shows that even the smallest estates have some amount of agency within the decision-making process and often use Chinese resources for their own domestic geoeconomic, political, or market-based decisions. Well, two weeks ago, a team of graduate students from Yale, including Nicholas Lowe, who I interviewed on episode five, took part on a Chinese Overseas Investment Impacts, greening the Belt and Road Symposium. It was the third annual event of its kind. I was supposed to attend, but uh, for some personal reasons, I wasn't able to make it. But I was lucky enough to contact one of the participants from the symposium who embodies the type of research I really want to feature on this show, Juliet Liu. Juliet Liu is a PhD candidate in the Department of Environmental Science, Policy, and Management at the University of California, Berkeley. Uh, She has a focus on political ecology. Her doctoral research examines the political economy of Chinese agribusiness companies' investments in Laos, primarily in rubber plantations. And today, you know, I have her on to overview a, re- a relatively recent article she co-authored with Oliver Schongweger, Great Expectations, Chinese Investment in Lao and the Myth of Empty Land, that was featured in the 2017 Journal of Territory, Politics, and Governance. So, Juliet, for that long intro, uh, welcome to the Belt and Road podcast. Thanks, Eric. It's great to talk to you. So, Juliet, much of your uh, recent research revolves around the topic of Chinese land grabs in Lao. Can you first set the stage of the popular concept of land grabs in the Chinese Laotian context? Yeah, sure. Um, so, I mean, this this topic is, it's funny because it's really why I moved from China to Laos back in 2011. Um, initially, I was kind of working as a research assistant at the Agroforestry Center in Kunming. And I was doing visa trips from Kunming to Laos, and I was on the bus every time with Chinese, you know, mostly Chinese men, um, some women as well, all of them hauling huge amounts of goods down to Laos and watching them go into Laos and listening to what they talked about, which was usually how Luohou Lao was and how Chinese people going to Laos to help them develop. And I got fascinated with this idea that they had this narrative of themselves as development agents. And at the same time, you could see on the New York Times and the Guardian, this kind of initially media driven, but later later taken up by academics and development organizations and this concept of land grabs. And so when I think of how I chose my topic, it's like I was really living at the border, crossing it quite often and comparing that experience to kind of this global discourse that land grabs were happening across the world, right? And so, I mean, what's so interesting about China and Laos in the context of land grabs, land grabs are seen as a new phenomenon in the mid to late 2000s. The number of large scale investments in land acquisitions, especially by foreign actors, so foreign financial actors, but also a lot of transnational corporations, they were investing in land, especially in the global south. So that's the idea of land grabs. And when we think of what really made that idea take off as like something to organize around and talk about, it was really seated in this idea of big investors taking advantage of small landholders, small, poor, rural landholders. 
And nowhere kind of exemplifies that more than I think China, which China has become, I think, the, initially the quintessential land grabber. It's mentioned much more in the early discussions of land grabs. And then Laos is kind of this quintessential example of a, a host country of land grabs. It's small, it's considered weak, it's very underpopulated. Um, it doesn't have a lot um, of economic activity other than resource extraction and, and land-based um, kind of agriculture. So yeah, that's what got me interested in the China-Lao land grabs debate. And so you conducted field research in this area from about 2016, 2017. Yep. Um, can you give us just an overview of the land area where you conducted research in? What's the economy like? What's the just a general sense of the, the area in which you were conducting research of Chinese land grabs in Laos? Yeah. So Laos is really, it's a lovely place to visit if you've um, ever had the chance. So um, the interesting thing about Laos is that it's landlocked and it's one of the least densely populated countries in Southeast Asia. It's also um, one of the least developed countries. So it's on the UN list of least developed countries. And I think 80%, maybe a little bit less now, 70% of the employment in, in the country is based on agriculture. So the vast majority of Lao people are doing agriculture. I study Northern Laos. And it's funny because I've, I've lived in the country for years. I lived there starting in 2011 and then back and forth during my graduate school years. I've never been to Southern Laos. But if you <laughs> if you think about kind of this setup of the country, you have the northern areas, which are far more mountainous. Um, you have the, the Mekong River kind of cutting through the western side of Laos, the western border. And on the east, mm -hmm. Laos is bordered by Vietnam and the Annamite mountain range. Um, and so you have these really beautiful, like paddy rice producing areas in the lowlands around the Mekong, and especially in central Laos and going towards southern Laos, you have like a big plateau the Bolivian Plateau, which produces a lowland crop like coffee and rice. and But then you have the northern uplands, and those upland areas are very different just physically from the rest of, well, not from the rest of the country, but the northern uplands are, they very much fit what James Scott writes about as Zomia, these areas that are quite rugged, remote, very difficult just to build infrastructure in. And that's mm -hmm. the part of Lao that borders China. So you have the the classic idea of the Southeast Asian uplands really is is fits northern Lao. So you have a rough, rugged, but very beautiful terrain, a rather mm -hmm. impoverished population. And you have many Chinese actors coming in to do investments into trying to buy land. Over the course of your research, who did you find? Who were these investors on the Chinese side? What were their interests? Uh, what were their political ties connected to the state? Were they connected to state-owned enterprises? Were they private market interests at hand? And what type of uh, industries were they trying to get involved with? Yeah, so that's exactly the center of my research. I mean, the the people that I was sitting next to on the 24 hour, sometimes 48 hour buses from Kunming, um, these guys are like your classic cigarette smoking, like they would get off the bus to go take a piss and then get back on the bus to smoke. That kind of like very rural two baozi people from Yunnan that have made a chunk of money, have made a pocket of money and have gone over the border. And so the border of Laos, kind of the northern border opened really only in the 1990s. China and, and Laos, their diplomatic relations had cooled off during the Cold War. And they kind of just started opening in the 90s. And that was when so much of the trade that you see happening in northern Laos is very Yunnan driven. Mm -hmm. You don't get a lot of people from outside, except for this, these huge groups of Hunanese who had basically come into Shishwambana in, in the decades prior. 
So you had this initial flowing over the border of people just doing trade, people, you know, selling products from China to allow people in Lao markets, bringing back agricultural goods, but really on a small scale. So you had this earlier generation of Yunnan people, especially people with religious ties, family ties, or having the same ethnic background. Um, you have like a lot of Akka that go right over the mountains to trade with each other. Um, mm -hmm. So you can think of Laos as having this initial kind of like earlier generations of Chinese diaspora. Um, and they're much smaller scale, but they really have laid kind of the, the foundation, I think, for um, what you've seen coming in the 2000s. So you had the going out policy in 1999. But when that happened, there was already kind of this opening border and Yunnan province was taking a lead in kind of doing a small kind of exchange, knowledge exchange visits and encouraging some of their companies to start investing. So in the early 2000s, you saw some agricultural companies investing a little bit in Laos, usually just doing contract farming or larger scale trade. And then you really saw in the 2000s, this huge diversity of, of Chinese investors come into Laos. You had big discussions about hydropower started going on in the late 90s. The Mekong River Commission was set up so that they could you know, deal with the idea of a lot of dams being planned. And Laos has since built a lot of hydropower. So that's like, you can think of hydro as a sector that has a good mix, but like leaning to much more towards having big central level state owned enterprises from Beijing, bringing along with them, of course, a bunch of middle level construction enterprises. And then you had a couple um, big mines in Laos had been one had been Australian run, and that was taken over by a Chinese company. And then you really had in the mid 2000s, this skyrocketing, this, this very fast expansion of medium to larger level, larger size agricultural investors coming mostly from Yunnan, but also from other places. So you have a, a very diverse mix of representations of Chinese capital in different sectors in Laos. Lots of your research focuses specifically on land investment to potential rubber plantations. Can you comment on what's special about the rubber industry in northern Laos? Yeah, so I focused on rubber partly because when I was working in Kunming, rubber was a central focus. I was at the World Agroforestry Center and rubber is a tree crop and it was being mixed with agricultural crops to some degree in Yunnan. But mostly because having having worked in Yunnan for three years before I went to Laos, rubber was just such a big topic in terms of environmental stuff, um, in terms of sustainable agriculture, which is are the, the intersection of topics that we worked on. So rubber is basically one of the main kind of products that Yunnan province ex exports. And so what's special about rubber is that unlike any of the other agricultural crops in Yunnan and, and really in China, rubber is a crop that has been considered a strategic resource to China since 1949. And so the fascinating thing about rubber in Laos is that you can't really understand fully the story of rubber in Laos without understanding rubber in Yunnan. And the story of rubber in Yunnan is really the story of the foundation of the CCP's control over the borderlands. And so that's where like taking a political ecology perspective is really useful because there's this really strong back and forth between how symbolic rubber was to the CCP, a crop that was cultivated kind of the way um, industrial workers work on a factory floor, right? You're supposed to tap mm -hmm. rubber every single day. You're supposed to be out tapping your rubber. It, it requires some sense of precision. You don't just wait for the harvest for a few months. You actually go out every day and, or every two days or three days. And, and so there was this idea that it was a modern crop and also just physically where rubber was suitable happened to be areas of China that were at, in the 1950s did not have a strong sense of CCP state control. You had Yunnan, basically, Hainan, arguably, and then Guangxi was much, much less of a periphery. But really mm -hmm. in Yunnan, like rubber was, was seen as something that 
it was planted by a mixture of like former military guys, sent down youth and like Han Chinese migrants from like Hunan and other places in the middle of China. It was a tool for bringing Han Chinese to the border. It was, you know, planting it in these border areas was a way of modernizing them. That story of rubber has remained important to how it's sold by Chinese actors in Laos. But um, uh, rubber is strategic to China specifically because the U.S. put an embargo on rubber imports. And rubber is used for a bunch of key things for a lot of machinery. It's like belts and fans and all these things. The um, inner parts are all connected with rubber pieces, but also because like it's a considered like military strategic resource because rubber goes into like military grade tires, jet tires, things that require higher levels of durability. And then after reform and opening, one of your papers you written, you spoke about the importance of rubber within Yunnan for its economic development in the context of reform and opening. When the household responsibility system was kind of reformed so that households had their own land, that way it kind of coincided with a moment when the state farms, the Yunnan kind of state-owned enterprises that were growing rubber, when they were running out of land to claim for the state for rubber planting, it became necessary for these Yunnan state farms that were growing rubber to start promoting amongst individual households, especially the ethnic minorities in other areas, because they, they basically had run out, of, run out of land to expand into. And so they had to expand via having outgrowers, basically. And so during opening and reform, rubber spread into household lands and, and people started engaging in rubber on an individual household basis partly as a way of helping rubber expand throughout Yunnan. Getting back to Chinese rubber investment within Laos, how did the Yunnan experience of rubber as a form of economic development, as a strategic resource, inform its decision and its um, thought process in investing in Laos? Um, yeah. So yeah, like I mentioned, it's you can't really understand rubber in Laos without understanding it in Yunnan kind of as the backdrop. When I started research, I was originally, um, I was working as a research assistant for um, this Center for Development and Environment in Laos. Um, and they're a Swiss-based, um, they're out of the University of Bern. And they basically wanted a set of case studies on, on Chinese investments. And when I, when I was interviewing Chinese investors and asking them why they had decided to come to Laos, a lot of them talked about really similar things, the ways that they kind of conceptualized rubber as having helped Yunnan develop and Yunnan as being a model for northern Lao developing. And so examples of how they, the, the, the formula to their logic, I feel, is kind of twofold. The first part is basically seeing Yunnan province and seeing northern Lao as having a similar set of like physical and sociocultural characteristics. Um, so they would talk a lot about how there are similar, similar minorities on both sides of the border, will speak similar languages, there's a lot of family ties um, some of the first rubber cultivators in, in northern Laos were actually, they had moved into China during kind of civil war activities in northern Laos, and they moved back in the 1990s and, and early 2000s. And when, when they had been in China, they learned from their relatives or whoever they were living with how to do rubber. And then when they came to Laos, they, they came back to Laos, they resettled in Laos and, and planted rubber themselves. So in that case, they were actually physically moving across the border and bringing agricultural technology from China in. But that first kind of piece where where the idea of like, especially Sichuanbana having similar physical characteristics and cultural characteristics to Northern Lao, and this is echoed at all levels, right? This is echoed by mm-hmm. Chinese policymakers, Chinese media, and yeah, and even Chinese tourists, this idea that, that Yunnan and Lao are, are comparable. And, you know, the second piece of that is um, because they're comparable physically and culturally, and yet 
Lao is more loho. Lao is backwards. Um, they would always say to me like, Lao looks like China 30 years ago. Sometimes they would say 50 years ago if they were feeling really cocky. Um, but, you know, they would say, Lao is just like the little brother of China. Lao is like China 30 years ago. And therefore, the logic is because they're similar and because Yunnan is, is obviously more developed than Lao is, Lao should just use the same formula that Yunnan used to develop. And it got to the point where there was a group of, of, you know, development planners in an office in Yunnan and they, um, they drafted kind of as a, a gesture of diplomacy, they drafted a suggested economic development plan for Northern Laos. And you could check off the pieces of it. Another researcher has kind of gone through, translated and analyzed it. Her name is Wei Yishi. She points out that they basically suggest resource extraction from Northern Lao to Yunnan as a primary economic kind of growth generator. And tourism, ecotourism and or, you know, tourism, cultural tourism as the other thing that would kind of boost the economy. And those are the same things that you saw focused on in Yunnan, especially. And along with that is the, the final layer is the idea that, you know, Yunnan used eastern coastal Chinese capital to develop. And most of that development was, you know, resource extraction from Yunnan and shipping it to the east. And so logically, Lao can follow in Yunnan's footsteps if it just takes Yunnanese capital and, you know, invests that in resource extraction, sending those resources back to Yunnan. And, you know, Lao will follow in Yunnan's footsteps, right? So so you really had that discourse as talked about. And it's it's not even the Chinese. I would say even Lao people, they will say like, Laos is poor, China is rich. And they see like, you have these really rich anecdotes coming from them. They see their neighbors across the border in China with motorbikes, concrete homes. Like they want to basically mirror exactly the the kind of vision of modernity that they see happening across the border. But then later on in the paper, you, you, when you're speaking to the investors, you saw that after they came in, even though there's this very, these very broad supposed similarities between you know, Southern Yunnan and, and Northern Lao, that many things were different in the end. What were some of the difficulties that the Chinese investors came about when they were trying to uh, build rubber plantations in Northern Lao? You know, when I was a research assistant, we selected the largest projects. Um, we took a random selection of the projects that were over a thousand hectares. And the idea was to ask them how they got so much land. The idea was to discover all of the formal and informal and or clever and unscrupulous kind of ways that they had pilfered the like land from mm-hmm. Laos, because that's kind of the narrative that was the original narrative that was so compelling about land grabs, the idea of these super wealthy, deep pocketed and much more clever um, business people coming in and taking land out from under the feet of the rural poor. But what you really saw actually was a couple of things surprised me. So one was that in terms of pure numbers, the companies were not getting as much land as they expected. And the way we compared that was we, we had looked through all the formal agreements that the companies had signed, the, the concession agreements they had signed with the Lao state. Um, and they would say, you know, X number of hectares are leased to this company as a land concession. And then when we would, would actually come to the province level, the province would tell us, you know, like, well, actually, they've only developed 20% of that. So then the question became, why have they only developed this much? And then we finally meet the investors. And the investors basically listed a myriad of challenges that are faced when trying to actually obtain land. So they had the contracts, but they didn't actually... And, and the amazing thing about studying land deals is that the contracts mean so little because land is a different type of commodity than other things. Yeah. Land isn't like, 
sheep where you can herd them off into trucks and cart them off somewhere else. Like land is, is grounded. So you have to actually go through all these social and political processes to actually access your land. You have to convince the nearby villagers to stop letting their cows graze where your rubber plantation is. And otherwise they'll eat all the leaves off of your rubber seedlings. You know, you have to figure out what areas are complete rocky mountaintops and what areas are actually arable land. You have to demarcate that. You have to kind of survey it. It involves a ton of processes that really require the cooperation of the Laos state at multiple levels and that require local buy-in, whether you like it or not. So a lot of companies had formal approval from Vientiane, even from the prime minister, and were shocked and horrified to realize when they got to lower levels that that didn't do that much for them in terms of physically actually accessing the land and maintaining their access. So that surprised me. They weren't actually getting that much land. And that surprise has, has played out across the, across the world. Land grabs have proven once people actually count how much land is affected, it's been shown that land grabs are no near, nowhere near usually the size of deals that people originally write on paper. The second thing was just kind of how frustrated and I guess just the, the emotional level for the, for the investors. I mean, First of all, they they weren't exactly who I expected. I expected to find the Lao kept on telling me um, in in interviews with villagers and government officials they always called the Chinese guys sneaky, and I thought it was a polite way of saying they cheated me. Yeah, and I was expecting them to be super savvy, and but a lot of these a lot of the people working these plantations and representing them it ranged from private investors, like families from rural Yunnan who had scraped together money to like go to execute the big dream, getting a big piece of land in Laos, like just a family run operation to kind of guy, you know, absentee landlords who had bought the land and then installed some plantation guy, um, some guy from China who knew how to run a plantation, but they were based in Vientiane or they were based in Yunnan and were rarely there. And the plantation was suffering as a result. Or you had, you had, there was one state-owned enterprise and they were the most interesting because, yeah, Yunnan State Farms is a provincial state enterprise from Yunnan, obviously, that dominates the, the rubber sector in Yunnan. And they basically, in, in the initial phase of obtaining land, they kind of were way behind all the other companies. Like one private company, they were super clever and they partnered with the Lao provincial, the Luangamta provincial army. And they got a ton of land because they were like, they had the army backing them. Um, and they, they took army land, which was very, very remote. The army land was like very hard for anyone really to access. So, but yeah, the, the state farms were just so frustrated because they came in with Beijing's backing. They, they like very high up people in Beijing had signed official agreements saying you allow the Lao government will, will help the Yunnan state farms develop like 300,000 hectares of land across northern Laos. They were supposed to be the central spoke of the wheel. You know, they were supposed to have these huge plantations in four or five different provinces and be like the nucleus kind of plantation for the rest of the investors. And they didn't get anywhere near how much land that they wanted. And it was basically because they had central backing. So they never bothered to make good relationships at the provincial level until like eight or nine years into their operations. Did they figure out that the local government in Laos is very separate from the central government? And so, yeah, they were, there was a huge mix of Chinese investors and that, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a great counter example to what you hear as the bigger narrative of China investing. It's just these very Yunnan connected investors on the ground, struggling and misunderstanding Laos in many ways. 
And it's it's so interesting that the the Yunnan state-owned enterprise that has the most state backing is the one that basically failed the most. I don't know if you want to use such stark terms, but it certainly had the most difficulty, as you said, because they were so disconnected from the ground. And you you're specifically looking at you know land, which is but all kind of linear infrastructure that happens throughout the Belt and Road or Belt and Road type mm-hmm. projects. It's it's tough to be so domineering when land is physical. The road that you have to build yeah, has right. to go through this village that has to go through provincial bosses or a local municipality. Or mm-hmm. I remember, I think it was uh, Yoi Zhang, um, China mm-hmm. Africa scholar at the China Africa study conference last last summer at Johns Hopkins. You know, he's told an example in the Congo of one of the state-owned enterprises. I'm going to get some of the details wrong, but one of the state-owned enterprises was building a major road. But then when they went through one of the villages, the the local uh, power broker in the area was like, well, you're not going to be able to build this road unless you build me my road over here. Yeah. And so the yeah. state-owned enterprise had to go and take their own money and build a separate road to appease this local elite within the DRC in order to, to finish the project in which was signed up from the top levels. And so when you have places of low areas of governance and what you sp- spoke as fractured sovereignty in your paper, which I really love, and maybe you could describe a little bit context of China Laos land deals. It's 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 fascinating how infra- physical infrastructure has to be in another sovereign territory, and it has to go through all these different levels, yeah. and so it really places an impediment upon Chinese actors' ability to exude as much power as sometimes conveyed. Not saying yeah. they don't have that because they certainly wield the wield the money, but on fractured sovereignty. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's. I mean, I think that's a common. It's it's a common story that you're hearing more and more. Um, I think that what's what's useful, just yeah, I can talk about fragmented sovereignty in Lao, but but yeah, I think what what's interesting about it. So there's two pieces to to that. It's like Chinese actors actually not not fully understanding um, the complexity of what they're getting into, or just not understanding they're being thrown and they're throwing themselves so energetically into so many new contexts. It's incredibly admirable. And they're very new to it. I think that what's easy, especially like, I think for people that started studying China only in the 2000s, it's easy to forget that China was actually, it was considered non-patriotic for enterprises to go out before the 2000s, right? So when we talk about these things like BRI and going out, I, I mean, it's almost like it's, it's, we talk about it as if the Chinese state is like waving its wand and sending these companies out as puppets of the Chinese state. But what you actually have happening is the Chinese state relieving pressure and opening the gates a bit, really just removing barriers. So yeah, you have these Chinese companies going out into places that they really have yet to fully understand. And on just a graph, I mean, when we talk about like that on a larger scale, I mean, China knows that it has to understand specific areas a lot better. It has to it has to do better at getting its academics and its its policymakers experience in other countries and to think more about the ground level in other countries. And, and yeah, land and infrastructure projects are insanely complex when it comes to actually um, figuring out local level politics. But even within um, the individual investors, you I, I saw over the 10 years that my interviews represent, I guess, because I started in 2012 and was asking them about their earlier. But you mm-hmm. really see that they, they've learned very quickly. And it was slow at first because Chinese companies are were very, in, in 2012, they never wanted any other companies to know what they were experiencing. But now by 2018, um, I saw them doing a lot more like 
cross-company discussion, forming business contacts across the sector and negotiating together. So they're actually learning to cope with the Lao investment climate a lot better. But yeah, so the thing that's interesting about Lao and that I wrote about in terms of um, fragmented sovereignty Fragmented. Um, Sorry about yeah. that. I don't know why no. I fractured written down. I mean, it's the same concept, right? Yeah. <laughs> same concept, yeah. different words. So so it's been used by other scholars before. Mike Dwyer is a big mentor of mine, and he worked in Laos before me. And he really originally talked about fragmented sovereignty in Laos. And the idea is that when we talk about countries as weak, a big problem about that, that you know, the host country is being weak, they have weak governance, they have weak kind of enforcement of law. It doesn't actually tell us anything useful about them. It's useful as a United Nations index, but it's just not useful to describe power in any country. You know, it's not power never functions as a from weak to strong scale. It just doesn't work that way. And so when you think about how power in the sense specifically of giving land to a certain party, that power in Laos is, you don't understand anything if you just think the government is weak, because actually the Lao government has a monopoly on certain aspects of the land granting process. And so when you think of the Lao government, they're definitely not efficiently executing the laws of the land, but they are not weak, right? So thinking of Mm -hmm. them instead as separated, as split up and fragmented, but in very specific ways and describing those fragments is kind of what that paper tries to do. And so what you see when you look at how these Chinese investors navigated and a lot of times kind of not so successfully navigated the land granting process is you start to see all these schisms inside of the Lao government. Um, So to begin with is like the vertical schism, right? The vertical fragments are basically from center to province to district in Laos. But in Laos, it's the central government on paper has a lot of power. But when it came to actually just knowing what land was available, where, what conditions that land was, how, how, like what quality that land was, how accessible it was, and whether there were competing land users or other claims to that land, that knowledge was all held at the district level and a lot of times at the provincial level as well. So the Laos state was definitely very fragmented in the sense that you really needed to have a local understanding of the land in order to know how to acquire it. And so a lot of Chinese companies, they tried to get central level support. You can assume it often involved like paying off central level politicians. I had a friend in a mining company and he was saying like, we just keep putting money into this guy's pockets and he doesn't do anything. But we know if we stop giving him money, he will do, he will stall our projects, but he's not actually making our projects go any faster. So the central government was able to collect a lot of rents in terms of handing out contracts, but not actually being able to transfer control or ensure and enforce control um, of land granted at the local level. And so, so companies did much better initially if they talked to the villagers and the district government first, and then the district government went to the province government and advocated for them. And then the province government went up to the central and advocated for them again. It wasn't the same across the board, but that was one real misunderstanding the Chinese investors had. Um, And the second one is kind of the horizontal fragmentation, right? So the actually ability to survey land kind of, it flip-flopped in between different ministries um, over the years. And also you had this situation where the Ministry of Investment and Planning was in charge of coordinating all parties involved in land granting, but the Ministry of Agriculture and Forestry was in charge of surveying for a long time, and the Ministry of Natural Resources and Environment was in charge with doing the environmental impact studies. Um, And so the ones with the boots on the ground were the ones who were able to really know what, what was happening with the deal 
and were the ones who were able to, I mean, they held the bottleneck positions for the investor. And so they had a lot more power that the natural resources and environment and the agriculture and forestry um, ministries, because they had the people actually providing services to the investor. They were the more important ones in terms of having the authority to make that process happen. Whereas, so there's been this tension in Laos across the ministries horizontally, and then that happens at all the levels as well. So the central government ministries will be bickering over deals, and then you'll have the same thing happening at the province level, which makes it, you can imagine, incredibly difficult for investors to navigate and actually get control of land. And so it really is something that the Chinese investors that I've interviewed over the course of five or six years now have really shifted. They've changed tact in terms of how they deal with the Lao government. Um, and they've learned right. a lot. And it just it wasn't just because they had the money and just because they had Chinese state backing, it never meant that they would actually get the land that they were seeking in Lao. So it was interesting. Huh. Yeah, that's that's so fascinating. Um, all of this one because you started in 2012. So on very anecdotally, have you seen any difference in either behavior actors and money that's flowing or I guess discourse before Belt and Road Initiative was was made in 2013 or talked about in 2013 or created in 2013 and afterwards or has, does that does that have any effect on the ground other than maybe the in the discourse of Chinese investors or maybe on the Laos side as well like this can be a portion of the Belt and Road Initiative. Yeah, um, so the Belt and Road Initiative is interesting because it's kind of in Laos, like there were enough things happening beforehand that people are just grabbing onto that name and kind of slapping it on, like, you know, like <laughs> yeah. next to the name of their project and it, just positioning themselves. If they're physically located on in one of those provinces, they'll they'll kind of say that they have something to do with that. And on a more serious level and like a more an actual level, like Yunnan State Farms has really, they've really refined the way that they're working. And so even though they didn't get a lot of land initially, the rubber price kind of bottomed out in 2011. And so the rubber market specifically has like, there was a ton of promise in the 2000s. And then it, it became, yeah, a lot less insanely profitable in 2010s. And so Yunnan State Farms has positioned themselves, interestingly, along with the Belt and Road Initiative. They set up in Vientiane, they set up, they're planning to establish a research center where they would do demonstrations for rubber tapping and they would host, it's kind of a catch-all kind of development cooperation center themed around rubber. But it's hmm. it's mostly built on their own money. Uh, I don't think that they're getting any Belt and Road Initiative money for this, but it's a way yeah. for them to basically hook into this broader discourse that Chinese investment in Laos is a development aid, is this form of alternative development aid. So not only are they like setting up this center and bringing Lao government officials there for like elaborate banquets with workshops attached, it's it's very much like a way of garnering Guanxi with the Lao officials that they work with. So they'll fly the provincial officials down to Vientiane, which all the provincial guys love that because they get to go on yeah. a big trip to the capital. And then they like, they, you know, they do these big demonstrations, they talk about rubber, and they're actually doing really good stuff, like talking about setting up quality control and standard assessment for rubber in Laos, which would help the rubber sector a lot. But yeah, they were here long before the Belt and Road, um, and they're not funded by the Belt and Road, but they're using the Belt and Road language to talk about themselves as development partners and as a way to kind of garner support from the Lao government. But also in terms of discourses... I think some of the change has happened at, at the Yunnan provincial level too. And I I don't know how to write about this because I can't prove any of it. But um, one thing that I love that has changed in the way that Chinese investors talk about working in Laos 
is their way they talk about loud labor. And when I came in 2012, ugh, everything was like, the laborers here are so lazy. They just drink a lot. I have to pay them once a month. Otherwise, they won't work the whole month. They're like, Thai lanla. They're just so lazy. Mm-hmm. One Chinese, and like always quoting me, insane like estimates like one chinese guy can do this many hectares and that takes seven Lao people to do that many hectares in a day mm-hmm. and of course that discourse is ignoring the fact that a lot like most Lao people still have their own land um, most people haven't been fully dispossessed so you can't control them as laborers as well so that must be frustrating but um <laughs> what i saw happening this this time that i went back is suddenly they'll pause in the conversation and look at me like with a knowing look and they'll be like now, I cannot say that Lao laborers are lazy, but, <laughs> and then huh. it'll follow with exactly what they used to say. Like, you know, one Lao guy can work only a third of the hectares that a Chinese guy can work. But I, yeah, I suspect that, I suspect that the investors have been disciplined somehow, either just socially through discussion and through negative feedback or in some kind of organized way. I mean, rubber investors are almost all of them belong to this Yunnan opium replacement policy kind of xianghui. So they all belong to the same opium replacement association. And I know that they go to meetings once a year where they like learn, you know, how to talk about their projects. So I kind of wonder if they got told, like, we need, we need to stop be, calling loud people lazy. So political sad. correctness is on the rise in, in Yunnan, I guess. Yeah, yeah, in a funny way. And well, that's the beautiful part about podcasts is we don't have to, we won't be as uh, discerning as an academic. Yeah, yeah. Journal. I mean, it's so an anecdote that talk out your ideas of your anecdotes. Yeah, um, exactly. Well, this was just absolutely lovely. So, yeah. Juliet, before we go on to recommendations, I'm just going to introduce you again. You've been listening to Juliet Liu. She's a PhD candidate in the Department of Environmental Sciences, Policy and Management in the University of California, Berkeley. Today, we mainly discussed her work from 2017, her and uh, her co-author, Oliver Schoenweger, Great Expectations, Chinese Investment in Lao and the Myth of Empty Land. I highly recommend reading that and everything else she's written. Uh, it's really wonderful work, and we need more researchers like you out there. Thanks. So do you have a recommendation for us? Yeah, I'm sure most of your listeners have read this, but The Spectre of Global China by Qin Kuang Li is her book just came out last year and it contains not only really good research that she's done in Zambia um, on global China, she really defines global China as a new thing to study. And she talks about some of the methods that China scholars need to break out of and some of the methods that scholars perhaps of, of other kind of disciplines or regional focuses that are now having to deal with China coming into those regions um, ways that they can have more rigorous, uh, less biased approaches to global China. So that's my academic recommendation. Can I recommend something random also? Not- Please do. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, so it's February. It's the beginning of the year. We've thought about um, New Year's resolutions. And I always every year read this 2014 Economist article, In Search of Lost Time, Why Is Everyone So Busy?, It's therapy and also an economic lens on the perception and distribution of free time. And I think it's super useful for people in a grad, in grad school who have strange schedules and work and work ethics, but also important for like everyone, modern capitalism. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Um, Both are wonderful. Both will be on my list and uh, they'll put them on the show notes. My recommendation for the week. Uh, is Venezuela and China, A Perfect Storm by Matt Furchin and Dialogo Chino. 
uh, it talks about the China Venice and the partnership and uh, China's lack of experience within political risk in other countries and the difficulties of continuing the non interference doctrine. And also, and so, really wonderful article on a more happy slash somber note. Uh, the personal reason I couldn't make it to the wonderful Yale mm-hmm. Symposium was my 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 senior pug uh, Batman, who I love so dearly. Uh, had to put him down, I guess, two weeks ago now. And uh, he brought so much love to my life and to the world. And so adopting a dog, uh, a pug, preferably, if you can, but any dog or any animal that you would love to have. Um, there's so many pets out there that need to be adopted and loved, and they will love you back. Yeah. And so adopt an animal. That's a great recommendation. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, Juliet, thanks again for coming on. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Really fun. You've been listening to the Belton Road Podcast. Follow us on Twitter or Facebook at Belton Road Pod. Until next time.